This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. We are nearing the tail end of our series entitled Rediscovering Jesus, and um, we'll probably have one more week or, or so. I'll just say or so, uh, not put myself in a corner here. Um, but we followed Jesus from his introduction into ministry by John the Baptist at the banks of the Jordan River up to the Passover meal, which was just a few days before uh, his crucifixion. Now, uh, could I have your attention, please? Today, if you don't stay dialed in, you're going to get lost. And you're going to think that uh, the study was just very disjointed because for the first part, for the first few moments, we're going to backtrack uh, 10 to 11 months prior to the events of the Passover uh, where, that we've been studying the last two weeks. Um, but, but I hope that you took your ADD medicine this morning because if you will stay dialed in, I think it'll make really good sense because near the end of our time together, we're going to rejoin Jesus and his disciples at the conclusion of the Passover meal and tie things together with some powerful words from Jesus that I believe will convict every single solitary one of us. I know it certainly did me. Okay, as we pick up our lesson today, uh, Jesus was moving through different towns and villages teaching and preaching. Jesus has already fallen out of favor with the religious establishment because he continually spoke out against their rigid and their, their hypocritical ways. Um, and because Jesus was on the blacklist, the religious leaders enlisted some spies to blend in with the crowds, and their goal is very simple. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. That was the goal. They wanted to catch Jesus in, in some kind of theological or doctrinal error in order to embarrass him in front of the crowds. And in fact, let me detail their strategy. There were three phases to what I call Operation Trap Jesus in his words. Phase one looked like this. The, the, the big dogs or, or, or the head hogs, whatever you want to call them, the upper leadership of the Pharisees, at this point, they wanted to try to stay out of the limelight, and so they sent their underlings. They We'll just call them junior Pharisees. And they were given very specific instructions. They said, you know, you junior Pharisees, you're not very well known yet. Jesus won't suspect that you're trying to trap him in his words. So go blend in with the crowd. After Jesus finishes his message, gets to the, the, the Q&A like he always does. Raise your hand. And it's important that you follow our instructions and do exactly as we tell you to do. So they did that. They blended in with the crowds. Jesus preached his message, finished the lesson. The Q&A, the question and answer session began. They raised their hands. Jesus pointed at one of them and, and, and said, what's your question? Here's what they said. First of all, they buttered him up. In Matthew 22, verse 16, teacher, they said, we know you're a man of integrity. And that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Well, once they got Jesus all buttered up, they, they probably think, okay, we got him. 
You know, he, he, he kind of fell for it and he's feeling good about himself. We've gained his confidence. They get ready to ask their question. Now, the question is an interesting one. It's what I call an IRS question. Seriously, they, they ask him an IRS question, but then Jesus' response is even more interesting. And, and to answer that IRS question, Jesus responds with a coin trick. Let me read it for you. Matthew twenty two seventeen. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So there's the IRS question. Verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? He saw through it. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. So there's the coin trick. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now, as they went away, they were, they were probably red-faced, embarrassed, because they knew that they had just gotten smoked by Jesus. That was phase one. Here's phase two of Operation Trap Jesus and His Words. The Sadducees enter the picture. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't always get along. I mean, they, they were about like Democrats and Republicans in Washington, D.C., Uh, Sorry to bring that up. That gives us heartburn, doesn't it? But on this one thing, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were united. They they both wanted to bring Jesus down. So so the Sadducees say, you know, it's our turn. You Pharisees couldn't get it done. You are so inept. (laughs) And they pretty much use the same strategy. They send people to blend in with the crowd. Jesus finishes finishes the teaching. Q&A session begins. They raise their hands. Jesus said, yes. And here's what they say. Matthew 22, verse 24. Teacher, they said. Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, that that sounds really weird to us. But the law was in place to protect women. Because in ancient times like this, women were vulnerable And if a woman's husband died, they didn't have any children, there would be no one to take care of her, nor would her husband's name be carried on. And back then that was really important. So there was a law where the late husband's brother would then have to marry her, even if he were already married. And he'd have to produce children through her so that the brother's name would be carried on. I mean, this law was in place to protect the woman. Now, sounds kind of strange to us. But, but it was really, you know, basically a good law to protect the woman. So the Sadducees tell Jesus the law, a law that obviously Jesus already knew. But then they take this law and make up a crazy situation that would never happen. I mean, it was nonsense. And they essentially turned their question into a riddle of sorts. Verse 25. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, every riddle has a question at the end. So here's the question. Now then, at the 
resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Now, as we say today, this was a doozy of a question, even though it wasn't even close to ever being realistic. But the crowd probably hushed and they were curious. They leaned in to make sure they heard how Jesus would answer this question. Now, do you know what the Sadducees were really trying to get across? They were trying to show how ridiculous it was to believe in an afterlife because Sadducees, they did not believe in the hereafter. That's why they were sad, you see. Sorry. But, but anyway, they, they asked Jesus this trick question, and, and, and I love this. Jesus says something that causes them to do a slow burn. Verse 29, Jesus replied, You are in error, uh-oh, because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Now, that hurt. That was a dig, major dig, because saying that they didn't know the Scriptures, that was like, this is a poor illustration, but like rubbing the fur on a cat the wrong way. I don't know how cats always find their way into my messages. <sighs> but, but Sadducees, they knew Scripture. And for Jesus to say, you don't even know the Scriptures, that was a major zinger. Verse 30, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will... Be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead. And again, Jesus strokes the cats for the wrong way and says, Have you not read what God said to you? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And, and that answer was a home run. And, and I can imagine that the crowd goes wild and they probably jump to their feet and, and give Jesus a standing ovation because they loved it when Jesus outsmarted the religious leaders. Because they were constantly putting a burden on them they weren't willing to carry. They, they were good about saying, well, do as I say, not as I do. And so in verse 33, when the crowds heard this, the answer of Jesus, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, in operation phase two, you know, here the Sadducees left the crowd really sad, you see. Well, hearing that Jesus had humiliated the representatives from the Sadducees, the Pharisees decide to reload. And... Um, that takes us into phase three of Operation Trap Jesus and his words. We see this in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And this time they came up with a really good strategy with a really, really good question. And, and they have this feeling that this is going to be that 100 mile an hour fastball that will strike Jesus out. Here's what happened. The Pharisees chose one of their best guys. Uh, um, he was actually one of their leading uh, uh, lawyers. He joins the crowd, blends in. When the Q&A session rolls around, raises his hand to ask this question. Now, if you were raised in church, you've heard this question. Matthew chapter 22, verse 35. One of them, an expert in the law, so an attorney tested him with this question, Teacher, 
which is the greatest commandment in the law? So Jesus, out of all the commandments that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, which is the greatest? Now, at that time, there was a standard theological Sunday school answer. I guess they didn't have Sunday school, but Sabbath school answer to this question. And most everybody in Jesus' audience would have known that answer. But I want to point out that this question probably wasn't the lawyer's real question. This was just the setup for the follow-up question. But he needed Jesus to commit to the standard answer first, and then he had a knockout punch that would put Jesus down onto the canvas, or so he thought. So he asked, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus replied in verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And everybody in the crowd probably thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they they probably repeated the last part with Jesus and with all your soul, with all your mind. Mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. Well, the lawyer's feeling pretty smug because Jesus answered exactly like he wanted him to. And so maybe he opens his mouth to ask the follow-up question that, that that he thinks will send Jesus into the ropes. But there's one small problem. Jesus doesn't stop talking. He keeps on talking. And I can imagine the lawyer is like, no, 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 please stop. You're messing up my plan. Because again, the first question was probably the little jab. The follow-up question was the uppercut that would send Jesus down. But Jesus keeps talking and says, In verse 39, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this signaled a very important shift because in the religious world in which Jesus lived, as as well as in the religious world in which perhaps many of us were raised, a person could claim to love God and treat people like dirt. And when they were confronted, they would say, oh, 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 no, you know, God and I are good. You know, I've been baptized. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. I help feed the kids on Wednesday nights. I tithe. And, and if you would answer and say, yeah, you do. But look how you are treating your wife. Look at the way you treat your kids. Look how you avoid and won't talk to so-and-so. They would say, yeah, but me and God, we good. That was the religion of the first century. And unfortunately, in many cases, is still the religion of today. You know, we talked about this a few weeks ago. We sometimes love our doctrine. We love our Christianity more than the people for whom Christianity was given. Well, Jesus continues on and says in in verse 40, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, in the first century, you know, they didn't have a Bible like we do, but they had the law and the prophets, which was basically what today we know as the Old Testament. Jesus says your entire Bible hangs on these two two commands. And, And what Jesus was trying to say was that we're to love God with every fiber within us. But then that love for God, listen, is best authenticated by our love for others. So if we claim to love God, but we treat our spouse or our kids like dirt, that shows we really don't love God that much. If we claim to love God, but don't have the time of day for those who are maybe addicted to meth or addicted to alcohol or whatever, then that brings into question, do we really love God? 
If we claim to love God, but aren't on speaking terms with so-and-so, we probably don't truly love God. So Jesus reduced all of the Jewish commands, of course, 10 from Mount Sinai, and then they had expanded that to over 600. But he reduced all of those commands down to to love God with every part of you. And then that love for God is authenticated by our love for each other. But, but then that brought up another problem. Because at this point in, in the first century, the word neighbor had a very clear definition. And you can read that definition in Leviticus chapter 19. But neighbor was defined as another Jewish person. And so when Jesus said, you're to love your neighbor as yourself, in the minds of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were thinking, they were thinking well, bummer, but that's doable. I mean, that just means love another Jewish person. And so well, we can probably do that. Well, fast forward a few weeks down the road and, and Jesus blows them out of the water. He, he's in a similar situation and another lawyer comes up to, comes up to him and asks another trick question. And, and in response to that question, Jesus tells the story that we've come to know as the story of the Good Samaritan. And at the end of this parable, he answers the question, who is my neighbor? And it's not an answer that pleases the religious leaders because Jesus changes the definition of neighbor. And now it is not simply another Jewish person or another person that's similar to you or, or someone that you like. Rather, Jesus makes an epic change in the definition of a neighbor. And now Jesus says that a neighbor is anyone, anywhere, with a need that you should meet. So what does that mean for us today? Well, that means that our love for God is best demonstrated and authenticated by loving those who are nothing like us and by loving those that we may not even like and by loving those that may not even like us. Those are our neighbors. So before we go on, let me bring it down a little bit closer to home and, and ask, who is your neighbor? I mean, your neighbor. Your neighbor. Let me tell you who your neighbor is. That meth addict. That's your neighbor. You want to know who your neighbor is? That poor person that lives three streets over from you is barely making it. Do you want to know who your neighbor is? That, that person at work that is a pain in the you-know-what? That's your neighbor. You know that person that has a big mouth and never stops talking? That's your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? The person that is a Patriots fan. <laughs> or a Rams fan. That's your neighbor. Okay. That's our little detour. 
10 or 11 months prior to the lessons of the last two weeks. But now we're going to connect back to our Passover meal that we've been studying. Just to bring you up to speed, Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples. Jesus has explained the fact that the bread and the cup would now represent his body, his blood. And now Jesus takes this opportunity for what might we might call the official reveal. And what happens next would change the world. Are you ready? This is huge. Jesus says to his disciples, this is epic. In John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, a new command I give you. Now, the disciples probably thought, Jesus, you've already changed the significance of Passover. Now you want to give us a new command. And Jesus, you can't do that. Only God can do that. Who do you think you are? Plus, Jesus, earlier you said that all of the commands could be reduced down to two. You know, love God with all your heart. Then love your neighbor as yourself. So, so, so we had the big two. So does that mean that now the big two will go to the big three? A new command? Well, here's the new command. And this ties the first part of our lesson together with this part. Verse 34, a new command I give you. Love one another to which they probably thought jesus uh, for a new command that's pretty underwhelming to which you also think uh joe come on that's all we hear about you know love each other god is love love here love there love everywhere can you come up with something a little bit more creative than this overused theme of love But Jesus wasn't finished. He added a stipulation. He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And to illustrate it, Jesus perhaps said, let me make sure you understand this. And and maybe he turned to Matthew and, Matthew? Uh, Yes, sir. Do you remember when we first met? Yes, sir. Do you remember what you were doing? Uh, Yes, sir. Well, what was it? Say it out loud. I was uh, collecting taxes. And, And Matthew, did you add to what the government required for taxes and in a sense skim off the top and and manipulate and cheat people and keep a lot of that money for yourself? And Matthew, did you do that? Um, Yes, sir. But Matthew, despite that, do you remember what I said to you? Uh, Yes, sir, you invited me to follow you. And maybe Jesus said, Matthew, for the rest of your life, the grace that I extended to you that day, because you you were a thief, you were a cheater, you were a person that took advantage of the rich and the poor, I want you to extend that same grace to every thief, cheater, manipulator to every single person you meet until the day you die. And then maybe he turns and says, Nathaniel, yes, sir. Do you remember when we met? Uh, Yes, sir. Uh, Nathaniel, do you remember what you said? Um, Let me me just remind you what, what, what you said. You said... 
let me tell you what you said. You dissed my hometown, my parents, my, my football team. I, I added that part there. But Nathaniel, just to refresh, remember you said, Nazareth? What good thing could ever come from Nazareth? Do you remember that, Nathaniel? Yes, sir. You were dissing my family. You were dissing my mama, my friends, my community, my way of life. But Nathaniel, do you remember that I didn't get in your face and yell at you and I didn't say, I'll show you, you so-and-so? Do you remember how I responded? Yes, sir. You invited me invited me to be one of your closest followers. That's right, Nathaniel. And I want you to extend that same kind of grace to everyone that says mean things about your mama, about your family, even about your kids, your community, and even your football team. I added that part. And then maybe Jesus said, all of you, all of the disciples here. Do you remember that afternoon when I preached that strange sermon about drinking my blood and eating my flesh? And we talked about this a few weeks ago and, and the crowds got nervous and we lost a lot of the crowd that day. Do, do you remember that? And they said, oh yeah, how could we ever forget that day? It was tense. Well, well as the crowd was leaving and they were flaking away, I saw the look on your faces and I read what you were thinking and, and I realized that every single one of you had thoughts about unfollowing me and walking away as well. Do you remember how I read your minds and I busted you? Yes, sir. But do you remember how I responded? I loved you. I never brought it up to you again. And maybe Jesus said, that's how I want you to treat each other. And that's how I want you to treat others that have hurt you. And that's how I want you to treat those that say mean things about you. I want you to love them as I have loved you. And Jesus might have said, and one more thing. You think you've seen my love for you so far? You ain't seen nothing yet. Because in a few days, I'm going to take this love thing to a whole new level. And then Jesus, and this is huge, he unleashes a statement that should shake us as Christians. I'm serious. It should shake every one of us here today. Jesus gives the result of loving as he loved. In John chapter 13, verse 35, says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, don't misinterpret this verse. Jesus is not saying that our love for one another will get us to heaven. This is not saying that, you know... Doing good things to each other will save us. No. But Jesus is saying that when you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, it will be best demonstrated, authenticated to others, not by how you raise your hand in church, not by how many times you read the Bible through, not by how you dress, not by whether or not you're doctrinally a Calvinist or a Wesleyan or a neither whether you're a Baptist or Methodist or one of those strange Church of God folks, none of those things will impress anyone about your walk with God nor draw them to Jesus. Jesus said, people will know you are a follower by how well you love each other. And 
compared to the extraordinarily complicated system of laws that the first century Jewish people had grown up with, this was a far, far less complicated system. But listen, in another way, it was much more demanding than the rules-based system. Let me explain here. And, And I would rather this not leave the room, okay? This is just between you and me. If you give me a list of rules... I have such a devious mind. I can find a loophole. I'm really good at that. You know, sometimes I'm like a middle schooler. You know, if you've ever parented a child through middle school years, you know what I mean. Uh, well, Dad, you said to be home, but you didn't say where at home. But, but Dad, you said you didn't want me to touch my phone this evening. I didn't. Siri made the call and I used the speakerphone. I didn't touch it. But mom, you said not to be on Facebook this evening. I wasn't. I was on Instagram. Or those of you that are a little bit older, you remember the days when one of our leaders said, well, I I did smoke weed, but I didn't inhale. Where there are rules, there are always cracks and loopholes. And that's why when a church begins basing everything on rules, the rules manual will get thicker and thicker and thicker because as people figure out a loophole, then the church will add another rule to take away that loophole. And here's the part I don't want you to tell, okay? Promise? Hope to die or stick a needle in your eye or however that goes. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but if you give me a Bible, I can also find loopholes. I can twist scripture and justify just about anything I want to do. I can say, well, I'm going to do this because the Bible doesn't say specifically not to do it. You know, it doesn't say that thou shalt not look at pornography on your phone. It doesn't say thou shalt go to church Sunday mornings. It doesn't say thou shalt be part of a life group. A system of of laws and, and rules provides a very ripe atmosphere to begin, look, to begin looking for cracks and, and loopholes to justify wrongdoing. But when Jesus walked into the loophole society of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he brought a new command that closed the loopholes and filled in the cracks. Now, instead of thinking, well, so-and-so mistreated me, and I know the Bible says not to return evil for evil, but there's a little loophole. The Bible doesn't say anything against giving them the silent treatment. You know, I won't do anything bad to them. I'll just give them the cold shoulder. With the new command to love as Jesus loved us, that takes that loophole away. You know, the Apostle Paul had such a way of taking Christ's principles and applying them to everyday life. And, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So, why should you be kind to those who've hurt you? Well, because the Bible says so. Well, yeah, but when this was written, they didn't have a Bible. You should be kind to those who've hurt you. Because you have been forgiven. Husbands, why should you be patient 
with your wife. She's not patient with you. Or vice versa. Because you have been forgiven. Why should you be compassionate to those who are on drugs and they've made a, made a mess out of their life and it's their fault? And you struggle here, don't you? Don't you? You know how I know? B- because I struggle too. It's tough showing compassion to those who have gotten themselves into a mess and they're the ones to blame. But you should be compassionate to those who bring all of that on themselves because you've been forgiven. Why should you not get mad when people are insensitive to you? You know, today you can hardly say a word without it being labeled as insensitive and it goes viral. I I, I get so frustrated. I'm sorry, but I get so frustrated when people get their feelings hurt so easily. Why should you be able to overlook a little bit of insensitivity towards you and towards your kids and your family and not put it on Facebook for crying out loud? Why? You should be able to take it because you've been forgiven. That's why when you say, well, pastor, there are so many relationship issues today. You ought to do an eight-week series on relationships. No, you don't need an eight-week series. All you need is a three-by-five card that says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Love as He loved. You don't need a series. You know, when you're wondering how to respond to your husband or your wife for something they did or didn't do, all you need to do is respond to them the way that God through Christ responded to you and me when we were idiots, when we were morons, when we weren't honest, when we were insecure, when we did the wrong thing. You know, you don't need a series. You just need to respond as Christ did. You say, well, pastor, you need to quote chapter and verse. You don't need a verse. Love is the mandate. Love is the command. There's no wiggle room. There's no space to cheat. There is no loophole when love is the mandate. And that's what makes this new command so uncomplicated. You know, Paul doesn't give us a bunch of do's and don'ts when it comes to interaction with your family and with your friends and your neighbors. And again, who is our neighbor? Those who have a need that we can help meet. But when it comes to our interaction with people, Jesus gives us a command. As Jesus loved us, so are we to love them. You know, in the Old Testament, you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, this matter of loving each other is the mark of the covenant. And again, this does not save you. But it will cause people to see that you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. So what a night it was for those guys. They showed up thinking, we're going to have the Passover meal, but... When that night was over, their heads are spinning. Jesus has washed their feet. He's telling them to serve each other. He's changed the meaning of Passover. He's given them a new command to love as He loved them and us. So, you know, I don't want to just give, uh, just shoot out a bunch of hot air and then we leave here unchanged and But as we wrap up our study today and move into this next week, I want us to determine which neighbor we are going to love and serve this week. Who are you going to be a neighbor to this week? 
And uh, why don't you make it someone that's not in your little clique of friends? Make it unexpected and maybe even undeserved. So, um, this morning as we wrap up our time together, I want us to uh, repeat together part of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that amazing love chapter. And then we're going to pray, and I'm going to let you go. But would you please stand, and on the count of three, could we just repeat this together? One, two, three. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. God, thank you that you saw through our hearts and minds that at times were devious. Lord, we're the loophole people. We're so good at coming up with loopholes. And Father, when you gave the mandate of love that filled in all the cracks, took away the spaces and filled in those loopholes. And Lord, even though we know that just serving each other, loving each other won't get us to heaven, that takes a work of grace where our hand of faith reaches up and grabs onto your hand of grace. And you give us the amazing gift of salvation, of forgiveness. Lord, that's what we begin with. But honestly, Lord, if we go downtown and we say, you know what? Well, I go to the church of God holiness. They're not going to be impressed one bit about our walk with you. Because churchgoers here in the Bible belt are a dime a dozen. Most everybody in this community has been baptized. Lord, we all have association with some kind of church here. That doesn't impress. But Father, whenever they see us as your children begin loving and maybe they've said something mean about us, we don't walk off. We just love them. We don't get in their face. We just love them. Lord, when there, there's that irritant at, at, at work and Lord, that we tend to gather together with a few people and talk behind their back and gossip and criticize, Lord, love helps us to love them, even if they are people that get on our nerves. Lord, we want to love as you loved us. And what's the motivating factor? Because we've been forgiven. And so this week, would you show us who our neighbor is and would you give us an opportunity to love our neighbor? And God, I pray that we would not just easily dismiss this. I know it's easy to do because we hear about, you know, God is love and love this, all that. And sometimes we just dismiss it whenever it's about love. But Father, I pray that we would understand what it was, the love that took Jesus to the cross. That's love. And your word says, as Jesus loved us, so must we love others. Help us to do that. 
I pray this in the name of Jesus. And all of my neighbors said, Amen and Amen. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.